Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Antifada. I, of course, am Sean KB. I'm here on a solo app, but I am fortunate, I am blessed to be here with returning guest and very good friend of the show. That is, of course, Jasper Burns, who teaches uh, English at uh, Cal Berkeley and is a, um, a fixture, let's say, in the uh, communization uh, general communist movement in terms of theory and practice. So with that weird introduction, what's up, Jasper? How's it going, man? Hey, how's it going? Is it fair to, to call you a fixture? Was that was that a, a fair? Fixture? Or would I mean, you say I you're... Is that, is that, I guess, I don't know. I mean, what's a, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. And I'm not sure that like I, I get to decide fixture. that. I don't know that I like being called a fixture though. It's like, I don't know. That sounds sounds like you know some kind of something. I'm stuck in place, you know. Like I want to be, uh, I want to be movable. Um, I'm striking. I'm, that's it. I'm striking fixture for the record. This is Jasper Burns, a man who's never been a fixture. He's never stood in place. He's constantly working, and movable, moving forward, a moving the object. project forward. Yeah, a movable feast of analysis and info, and practice. Um, what's up, man? It's good to have you back on. Uh, this is a long time coming, I think. I don't think we had you on since there was a party that we all were at, and we randomly decided to record. <laughs> That's right. Like wow. 20, 30 minutes. Wow. Yeah. What <laughs> was a party. At Shams that was house. hilarious. Yeah, that was really hilarious. Yeah. What a time. We had a. We are unfortunately not on the same coast right now. No. So we don't have that ability. But um, you're holding it down there. You're holding it down there in the Bay Area. Right before we started recording, you were just saying how um, the Bay Area doesn't really feel like the Bay Area. It feels kind of more like New York now, which is funny because ever since, uh, you know, the last year or so, I felt like New York hasn't even really felt like New York. Things have changed here rapidly. Yeah. What's going on over there? Well, I mean... In one sense, it really doesn't, you know, doesn't feel like New York. It still is, it's still the Bay and has a completely different vibe. But I think that the, 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 you know, the insane uh, increases in in rent and then the more recent kind of inflation increases of everything else that people have had to kind of bear, um, you know, it's just it's just made the Bay Area really. Um, unaffordable for so many people and you know there are a lot of people who people feel that kind of that feel that differently some people are immune to it for various reasons um but it you know it's 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 pushed a lot it's pushed a kind of new round of people in my lives kind of out um and it certainly has just changed kind of who 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 i feel like is around um yeah and, you know, and it just, it's, you know, there's a kind of, there's a, uh, there's a different vibe that comes with that. Almost so many people are kind of hustling and, uh, you know, desperate. And Thing, things and have things kind, of gone, just, you know, kind of desperate here and also kind of mean, you know, like you're talking about a vibe shift. Right. Uh, New York feels like it, it did maybe in the 1990s, which I'm old enough to remember. Right. Uh, I remember are crueler people are um, there's much more litter in the streets. Uh, there's been a lot of fights that I've seen recently. Yeah. There's a lot of people who um, have lost their houses and are now just out with very few services. And so the city, but at the same time, rents are up by like massive percentage points. So a similar process to what's happening in the Bay Area is happening here. Definitely feels like a city in transition into something else. There's like a kind of a dark energy and it feels like so much of what's happening with uh, rental prices and the cost of living is bringing something new, something, yeah. uh, a different sort of city into existence. It's not really clear to me what it's going to be. like. Exactly. Like, you know, and I look like I just moved basically to uh, downtown Oakland, whereas I was living in, in a different part of the, the, the Bay before. And, um, <clears throat> Yeah, you know, and there's all these these kinds of shops that are that are reopening, but it's not really clear that they can kind of survive with the whole service economy of the sort that, you know, New York thrives on and that you would need to like to sort of get things going in, you know, and hold up these 
property values, etc. Um, it's not clear that that's going to ever work. You know, no one seems to be eating in these restaurants or patronizing these stores. Like the people who live in the, you know, in the in the really fancy condos. Like to the extent there's anyone living in them, I think that they just like kind of like get into Ubers and are, you know, ferreted someplace and like order their food in. And I don't think they go out into the streets. And then so, you know, so like it's basically still pretty dessert. It's really like empty down here. It has a kind of like yeah. empty sort of feeling, uh, and. You know, which is, and then it's also, you know, it's still, it's still this amazing, incredible place, you know, and there's all kinds of cool, you know, so it's, it's very, it's very strange. Uh, it's a strange it's time. A very, I mean, this is wrong. why, I mean, we, we're both talking about the ways in which we, we feel this sort of transition, not just the vibe shift, which everybody knows about, but some sort of like larger political economic um, sort of turbulence that's happening at the moment. This is what I wanted to speak with you about. Um, I wanted to speak with you about a lot of things, but uh, you're a, a, an astute follower of, of these things, of the changes of global capitalism, and also to, of course, the changes in the way that the proletariat, of course, is forced to struggle within um, the conditions that are thrown up by development. Um, I want to start things because we're going to talk about inflation we're going to talk about supply chains and we're going to talk about logistics and not simply in an abstract way, but also especially towards the end in a practical way as this new org that I've started is, is moving and, and getting off the ground. And one of the things that we want to do is try to create a sort of communist counter logistics, uh, something that you proposed uh, actually in a piece you wrote in EndNotes 3, God, I guess like about a decade ago, uh, that came out of your experiences in um, Occupy Oakland, which maybe I think some of the younger listeners of this show are not familiar with um, the kind of outlines of that struggle and the very interesting ways in which what had been a, a popular assembly and uh, a manifestation and a protest um, against uh, Wall Street getting bailed out and a bunch of people losing their homes, the way that this capitalist recovery went, um, Occupy Wall Street being a response to that, then of course to hooking up with uh, a more traditional workers' struggle and what essentially becomes a general strike by the unity of those two things. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, your, your piece and your analysis about logistics, but first tell people who aren't familiar what happened uh, there in Occupy Oakland, what happened down at the ports, and, and what did this mean for you theoretically? Okay. Uh... So, well, I didn't realize we were gonna we were we were going to start uh, there. Uh, I mean, I think I you know I <laughs> uh, I do think in some sense that's a, a somewhat distant question from thinking about what's going on today. But you know, I uh, I participated in in the kind of movement, uh, whether you call it Occupy Oakland or the Oakland Commune, and there was this kind of moment. Um, uh, that that called itself a general strike, uh, which was the, you know, the the declaration by the Oakland Commune Occupy Oakland, and by like ten thousand people that came to take over uh, the downtown area that uh, we'd all been evicted from, that we would sort of declare a, um, you know, a general strike on this particular day. Although, you know, people had. Um, in some cases, a marginal attachment to the kinds of places that they actually could strike in some way that wouldn't be like individualistic, right? The ability to actually kind of strike whole workplaces. So, you know, question arose like, what would it mean to do? What, is, what does it mean to, you know, call yourself, call this a, a general strike? Although in some ways I think it does, the moment does look a lot like, you know, what um, Rosa Luxemburg you know, referred to as the kind of mass strike, which was a term that she invented to uh, encompass working class self-organization that really was both within and beyond the workplace and could be like sort of political in its orientation sometimes and then sometimes be also about um, actually bread and butter wage demands. I mean, in a really, really different context. But sort of people, you know, people said, oh, it isn't a mass, you know, it isn't a general strike because you didn't, you know, you didn't actually strike these uh, workplaces, but I do think that, in a certain sense, you know, at least a lot of a lot of the city was 
was shut down, and then particularly the, sh the port, you know, which is in some way the real, the central um, artery uh, of value in in the Bay Area was, you know, was shut down. And this kind of interesting moment where the entirety of the the uh, the you know forty thousand people or something that came out that day, um, or you know maybe it was twenty or something like that, uh, marched into the ports to you know to, to shut it down. Uh, and really, I think you know it's it it was an incredible feeling uh, to be there, and it wasn't in some in some ways it wasn't the most you know spectacular thing that. I've ever been part of, but there's something about just that kind of um, massiveness. Uh, and I think, and there was something about that, the generality of that moment um, for me that I, you know, I encountered that day and, and that week leading up to it. You know, I would encounter kind of people from different walks of life uh, that I didn't expect to see in the streets, you know, and I think that's what really marks kind of something that's truly massive you know when you when you start to really see people you're like what are you doing here you know um right i didn't expect you're to outside see you. of the activist right? milieu exactly right, yeah. something something and and there's just the power that comes from it and the power comes from kind of sharing with other people their wonder at, uh, at that the collective power you know and I, and I really and i really i think you know in some way i've just tried in my in my writing and my thinking to be faithful to that experience um, you know, whether it's something, you know, indirectly when I, you know, I can see other people having that experience of collective power too, I don't necessarily need to have witnessed it to be able to understand it for what it is, but it's about, you know, being faithful to, um, thinking about, you know, really imagining theory as the theory of people in that moment, trying to imagine their, their way out of capitalism. And that's ultimately what and, all theory and one... has to be. Yeah, and and one of and the reason why I wanted to start with that sort of touchstone moment is I think because it's anticipatory of a lot of um, what, uh, what what not just the class struggle has been uh, with a series of blockades um, from the the gilets jaunes, um, you know, starting to occupy through gilets jaunes uh, with the picateros uh, in Argentina. All sorts of different struggles have similar to what happened in Oakland, just oriented themselves towards this blockading of, of circulation um, as and it's this sort of um, um, it's it's a it's a practice that seems adequate to the type of um, a global capitalism that we have today a global capitalism that we've seen um, brought to its knees really over the last couple of years or at least the normal everyday running of this globalized productive apparatus has been remarkably um, hobbled and shifted by what we've seen in the COVID crisis. This sort of miracle world of commodity productions where one could order something on Amazon and it appears <clears throat> at their doorstep two days later um, has broken down over the last couple of years. The, the commodity flows have gotten all haywire and we're in this inflation mess. So it seems to me that what the possibilities that the 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 the, the Oakland Commune and uh, the Oakland General Strikers were um, were seeing that opportunity has now become one that is potentially a generalizable uh, and b also one that is only more pertinent uh, in this in this day and age. Right, I think that that's I think that that's absolutely right, and that's one of the first things I tried to point out was that. The kinds of tactics that people were choosing and the um, the things that you you saw then uh, were not exceptional. Uh, they were only kind of what made sense, and they were going to, going to become more and more obvious as as time went on. And you know, and that and that was already clear then. And I think really, you know, everything that's happened in the in the last uh, ten years since has just confirmed that. Whether it's you know, I mean, there was a moment when you know, yeah. Uh, blockading a freeway or something like that was seen as this crazy, uh, this crazy thing to do. And now it seems just the kind of natural uh, response. Uh, and, and there's a kind of, there's, there's a way in which things that were, that were, that were difficult to point out then now almost seems so obvious that it's not even worth taking the time uh, to point it out. But yeah, I think that the idea that, you know, in, in, in 2011, if you said circulation is the kind of the, the, 
the locus of you know struggle in many ways even if we're talking about production that's the production that's oriented towards circulation um that was something people wanted to like really fight you about and they and it was a hard mm. case to make i don't really think that i think that's argument has mostly been won now uh and i think that most people have like accepted it in some way uh and i because i just think that you know the, the entire cycle of struggles from occupying everything that's come after whether it's kind of black lives matter or it's standing rock it's the gilets jaunes it's you know struggles in you know places you know all over the world um that have unfolded you know the kind of the gasolinazos you know all over kind of the sort of uh spanish-speaking world i mean there's just you know it's it's uh there's a whole kind of right uh series of examples um but in some ways that's that 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 debate is is largely over and what i wanted to point out was that the reason why you see that is because it makes intuitive sense and it doesn't no one needs anybody right. to tell them to do this they simply have to look at their lives and they have to simply look at where value is coming from and how economies work and that and that if you even you know you 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 credit people with a with a kind of you know basic capacity for kind of reasoning imagination people are going to figure out to block the ports you know and and you know they have historically and they are going to do it again and that's just obvious when you live in a place like Oakland right and more and more places right. in the world look like Oakland rather than some other kind of model of struggle and so so the people the only people who don't get it really are the kind of theorists who are continue to work with kind of outdated models and to continue to kind of speak towards you know kind of uh, shadows that, that aren't really there in some way let's um 100% let's talk about um this this current crisis right coming out of uh the covid-19 pandemic which we all know was horribly mismanaged um by the capitalist state the capitalist state pulled in contradictory directions of course uh eventually seeing the uh vaccine as the kind of catch-all mm -hmm. solution to this get a good vaccine out and uh send people back to work get the economy going again there was supposed to be a uh, a v-shaped recovery coming out of that we were supposed to all go back to our regular lives our regular work lives uh capital was meant to um just kind of jump back after all that and things have not gone uh, exactly in that way. You wrote uh, an article which you pointed me to in the Brooklyn Rail in February, which talked about this surprising return of inflation. And you were talking at that point in time, you were one of the things you were doing was polemically arguing that this inflation was coming from a sp supply shock situation, that it wasn't a monetary phenomenon. It wasn't due to the stimulus, right? That it was uh, uh, supply shocks, you know, the actual inability of capitalist production to keep up with demand, the various different ways, uh, eccentricities that happen to transport and production and the movement of things and the consumption of things over this year and a half long period or so when so much of the global economy was, um, you know, in the doldrums, shut down in various different ways. So talk a little bit about what the conclusions of that article were six mm -hmm. months ago. Of course, written before right. the uh, Russo-Ukrainian war. Right. Uh, what, what some of the things you teased out were, what the implications were, and if, if it bared out. So, yeah, I think that, that uh, again, I mean, maybe uh, and people can choose not to agree with my account, but I think, again, what I was arguing then which was something that many, many people were arguing. I was just putting together a story that, that many others had reported on, you know, in the Financial Times and the New York Times. Um, it was it was really clear then that the, and I'm not saying that kind of the excess money doesn't play a, doesn't didn't play a part in inflation, but it's clear that, you know, um, that these problems with supply chain and particularly um, the kind of incapacity of shippers and the logistics industry uh, to deal with this kind of this this massive kind of whiplash in in demand, uh, if, particularly with regard to the kind of trans-Pacific trade, um, but that caused the you know the bulk of it, which is that you know the pandemic suddenly it like cratered it cratered demand from Asia, and then it and then and then the the, the massive QE infinity stimulus and all of the kinds of money that the the Fed and the U.S. Treasury pumped into the economy then re regained all of that kind of lost demand and then more on top of it. And, and because people were kind of shifting their consumption on top of that. So uh, people went from shifting 
from buying services to kind of buying durable goods and people like bought gaming systems and things like that. And it was just impossible for uh, the container ships to keep up with all that volume of shit people were trying to buy so they could be at home during the pandemic with their stimulus. And it's just, it's pretty obvious that you can tell the story of that. So why didn't it get better? And I said it wasn't going to get better then. Um, and that's because um, the problems with the shipping industry have persisted. Um, and and why that is, is, is complex. But the whole shipping industry is largely a mess and it still can't it still hasn't gotten back to normal. Um, the question is whether that's like profit taking by shippers or what. Um, and I think it's a little bit of, pro you know, it's a, the, the thing is the shippers um, who control very small parts of their market, they benefit from this situation of high prices. So they, they like it, just like the oil companies mm -hmm. like this kind of situation, right? So, um, and, prices and, are and they're in no rush. A, a bit, they're in no rush to fix yeah. the situation, right? And uh, because the because the market is so fractured, and because everything's kind of changing, uh, especially with the kind of way that China has has pivoted, and the way everything is just so difficult to predict, um, that you know we haven't seen uh, that 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 stuff fix. And then there's a lot of other kinds of things that are driving it too. Um, you know, there's the, the the kind of chip, the the microchip um, part of it. Um, there is the kind of the food and energy part yeah. that's been added by the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, the zero COVID so, policy in China. Right, which is, you know, which is, I mean, one of the main reasons why the shipping industry hasn't been able to to deal with this is partly because of, you know, um, what the zero COVID policy does to the ports. And and it just kind of sh and and it shuts down producers and you know you're kind of playing whack-a-mole of trying to kind of predict it and and things are kind of getting uh, pushed around and then also yeah new to kind of COVID regulations in the ports have been a way that like labor has been the the kind of people who work there have been able to use it to kind of extract concessions you know so there's a kind of struggle over over that. And um, so, yeah, I think that it's just it's it hasn't gotten better and it's not clear that it, it will. You know, maybe the like just things are so that th this is the new normal. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I don't know. So I made a I made a, a series of or I tried to look at last on last week's episode. I tried to look at inflation not as a monetary phenomenon, not as a supply phenomenon, or I'm sorry, supply and demand phenomenon, uh, but instead as a crisis of accumulation and a crisis of production. And one of the things I came to, which I think you might argue against, because at the end of your piece, you say that ultimately the cat, the 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 medium term future of the capitalist economy is uh, is disinflationary or deflationary. Um, looking at like a, a, a kind of long-term crisis like we saw in the 1930s or the 19th century. But I was, I was one of the things I was arguing on top of the things you're mentioning was the sort of long-term um, disinvestment of capital in infrastructure and productive capacity. Um, that sort of um, right. the overhang of the services industry, the overhang of finance, the, the, the fruits of 15 years of uh, easy money and all sorts of like rent taking um, since the unsolved last crisis have led us to the point where sim like the with the formula um, shortage that there was in this country it was because there's two companies that make formula and profits are so low that they haven't invested in their plant. Uh, and so basically like you have this old shitty equipment and then children get sick out of it and you have to shut the whole thing down. So I'm not sure what you think of that particular argument, but I feel like this is as much a kind of crisis of, of accumulation as it is anything else. Right. Well, I think that you, I think you're absolutely right. And that's why you can't really tell the story. You can't tell the story of what's going on unless you think about the entirety of the 2010s and everything that preceded it. Right. And, yeah. um, and you, you, yeah, you can't understand um, you know, anything that's happened, if you don't understand, you know, kind of investment in the, you know, shale energy industry and kind of all the money that got pumped into various kinds of unproductive parts of, uh, 
the economy across the the twenty tens. But I think that um, that what you say is right. That ultimately, in some with the, some of these some of the instances of um, you know where you're seeing supply chain problems, it derives precisely from the concentration of uh, capital in these industries and, you know, what Marx calls a kind of rising organic composition of capital. So, for instance, the kind of microchip right. industry, right? It takes so much capital to create a new chip lab um, and employ so few workers, by the way, also, uh, that a lot of companies right. are not willing to do it unless they're essentially subsidized by the state. And that's why, they, that's why the U.S. government just had to pony up, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars to essentially subsidize these kinds of chip fabricators. It's because... You know, the amount of money you have to put forward in order to, to exploit labor is so high uh, that most people won't do it. And you can only do it with kind of an incredible amount of help from the banking industry in the state, you know, which is how it's done right. in China. Um, and, you know, and that's why there's this kind of panic that, you know, there aren't enough um, chip labs. But ultimately, you know, yeah, the reason why there's this kind of uh, problem with chips right now that's causing – you know, inflation, which is probably largely short term, yeah, it ultimately derives from these kinds of more sort of classic, uh, you know, uh, crisis mechanisms that that we understand that have been that have been grinding along throughout uh, this whole period, and you know, and yeah, and I think when I when I say that the the when I say that the, the I believe that the era will will be deflationary uh, when things. Uh, when everything is added up, I just think that that's because the only way it would not be inflationary uh, is if there wasn't this just massive surplus of labor, uh, which is driving down wages, and that still exists, right? And so because because there's labor deflation and because labor is just cheap, uh, everything else is, I think is going to continue to be cheap, and I think that's actually what you see. So what what's happening right now? Well, the dollar is strong. And it's getting stronger and stronger. And what does that mean? It means that inflation here will be moderated uh, by the kind of weakening of these other uh, economies uh, in, in mm. the trade relation and their kind of their kind of inflation crises uh, and their debt deflation crises, which will be inflicted on them by the kind of combination of you know high interest rates um, and and a strong dollar, and um, and that will make in the long run you know things cheaper for. Uh, you know, it will it will it will lead to the ongoing kind of deflation, uh, and that's more likely what we will see is the kind of grinding forward of deflation because ultimately the you know this has to do with the valuation of labor and labor is devalued. There's an excess of labor, and so I think that's what we'll see ultimately. Uh, and you know, we're already kind of seeing that as you know the economy slows. Um, yeah, that this is the this is the big headlines that I saw. They had a double hit this weekend. The New York Times had a, a big article in like the trends section about uh, the new trend of, of vast uh, liquidators. You know how they're busier now than they've been in right. a long time, and that's because things are still haywire. And if right. you remember, you know when uh, like a year or so ago when uh, they were trying when big uh, retail companies were trying to order goods to come in time for Christmas turns out that a lot of those goods could not be sourced or they or they could be sourced but they couldn't be transported over so there's been this tendency over the last year or so for uh, retail capitalists commercial capitalists to stockpile a bunch of goods anticipating right. a continuation of the sort of demand surge that we saw well now right. the flip side is happening and there's a right. huge big industry now in the United States of getting all these commodities that cannot be sold by Walmart, by Target, by Amazon, right. and either selling them for pennies on the dollar or literally destroying them in landfills. Mm -hmm. So this is this seems to me a turn that's happening now. You know, the worm is turning in this instance. And perhaps we're going to be looking at, um, you know, like a, a more classic type of economic recession coming up. The Financial Times had an article, too, about um, about warehousing capacity and how it's running out and how, you know, they're also monitoring this whole situation. So very interesting things happening right now. Well, yeah, you know, nobody's going to invest kind of different, in, diff yeah. Nobody's going to invest in anything right now. And I think, you know, I think we'll have this kind of stagflationary recession, 
with prices continuing to rise and in, in these you know particular sectors I mean a lot of it is being driven by um, by the energy market right now um, which is you know pushed by um, the Russia Ukraine war and then its effect on food which at this point is you know yeah. affecting everything else um, so yeah the the food thing is uh, is kind of a ricocheting uh, crisis the um, me and Derek Varn did an episode about that a few weeks ago and one of the things that it's leading to of course to the strong dollar and the price of food and the cost of keeping the subsidies up in food of course is a uh, going to be a domino effect of sovereign debt crises uh, yeah. over the next coming months Sri Lanka is probably just the canary in the coal mine for that you've got right. Pakistan you've got Gambia you've got right. um, potentially Turkey as well Right. So we just had, so, you know, I think you, since you read the financial time, you, you, you know, when you, you read the, the news that's real or whatever, and I, I see you linking these stories, you saw that, right, they, Turkey kind of brokered this deal to get the kind of grain to get the, get the, um, to allow grain to, um, go out from the, the Ukrainian ports, like, you know, Russia and, and Ukraine agreed to, um, or, you know, Russia agreed to allow some of this, this uh grain to go out from um from the ukrainian ports uh, and so that may that may take um some that may cut some of the uh the the uh ferocity of the kind of food crisis especially in these places that are directly dependent upon that grain in particular like with some countries that you know right. import a, an incredible amount of wheat um from them. But at this point, this, it's created this kind of knock-on effect through the you know futures market, etc. Um, that it's unclear that yeah that 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 will really kind of avert this kind of food crisis. But if it doesn't, as you say, then there's this kind of debt crisis on top of that that's coming behind it, that's likely to be its own kind of cause. So, you know that I definitely think that we will see, we are going to see more, um, you know more more things. Um, uh, like Sri Lanka, uh, in the next little bit. And I think, you know, that's probably where we should kind of focus, think about, you know, the, the political energies of, of this year are likely to kind of, I don't know, that's, that's, that's where I think things are likely to kind of be most, most explosive as in the places that are directly, um, you know, impacted by the food crisis with the debt crisis. Are, do you think that we are still in this in the same cycle of struggle as we have been since 2008? Did COVID come and kind of put a lid on things for a little bit? But do you still feel as though there's a sort of um, uh, a growing um, global proletarian sort of um, rising against uh, conditions right now? Do you feel like um, we can still see the energy of, say, 2011? working its way through the globe right now or do you think we're in something else i don't know i think that i think that you know there's there's i'm not really sure uh it's a bit too early to say um it's probably a little bit of both and there are different kinds of cycles so i think from a perspective you know one when one way of marking political time you'd say no it's a new kind of cycle of struggle but in another way of marking time you might see it as extensive i think there's arguments to be made for both ways certainly i think something really really shifted and i mean there was interestingly enough this kind of wave of struggles in the world in 2018 uh you know Mm -hmm. that was largely in the kinds of places that are likely to be affected by the the food and 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 debt crisis so this may be kind of a term of and, and in some ways, what was looking like, what was kind of looking like a kind of, um, a kind of political cycle, uh, you know, in, in, you know, Sudan and, and Chile and Haiti, et cetera, Iran, uh, that, you know, that might have, that might have continued to, to percolate if it hadn't been for the, the pandemic, which made those kinds of, those protests essentially impossible and at least allowed the state to just clamp down on things, you know, uh, right. with, 
you know, in in certainly in uh, in Europe, that's exact. That's how it worked. And so, um, you know, so so you you can make an argument that the, the, what we're seeing now is extensive with that because there's a kind of similarity. Um, and yet, you know, the tactical repertoire does bear some similarities, like going back to the kind of 2011 moment of Occupy and the movement of the squares and the kind of, you know, Arab Spring, etc. So I think that you could make... You see this in Sri Lanka, right? I mean, what was Sri Lanka but a mass occupation of Colombo, the capital, and then the actual seizing of... Uh, you know, state buildings, including the, the prime minister's house. Right. right? So, right. So there's def that's definitely reminiscent. Right. Right. I mean, that's it's just interesting because that's just the kind of language. That's just things. That's just that's just what things look like now. You know. Um, yeah. And I think there's a kind of obviousness to it. People, as I say, you know, it's just like people figure this stuff out. They've seen it. They know. They know what to do. You know, and they do it. Uh, and, you know, and that's, that's part of the power of these moments, but it also can be part of the ways in which they kind of just like rush towards these like standard kind of block blocks and obstacles and find, sort of find themselves kind of falling yeah. short of, of being effective. Uh, so, you know, it's not to, I wouldn't want to kind of, you know, romanticize that, that the powers of kind of spontaneity and self-organization because they, they do kind of, um, then you know they didn't then tend to kind of raise these questions that elicit different kinds of responses covid's interesting because um you know you have as you said this this shutdown of um what seems to be a kind of global uprising um spreading but then of course also in the united states it sets the conditions for the largest sustained uh insurrection in, in american history right the, the george floyd uprising um, what, what, what do you think, um, you know, to use the, the language, uh, that, that you would have, would have applied, say in the end notes argument, what, what have these struggles learned from themselves? You think, what kind of barriers have they come up against? What sort of questions need to be asked? Um, what to, in order for them to overcome the, the kind of limitations you were talking about in Sri Lanka or say the sort of limitation where the kind of swan song of the BLM summer was the creation of the autonomous zone in Seattle that sort of just wears itself out, goes through the motions of trying to create autonomy and ends up just sort of petering out at that point. There's a big question I know. Yeah, those are, the, those are the biggest questions. I didn't think you were going to... I don't think you're gonna do me like that, oh. Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, dude. Yeah, yeah. I sold you a, fa a false bill of goods. First, uh, I call you yeah, a fixture, I mean, and now I ask you to the, solve the problem. Those are the questions <laughs> I, you know, those are the questions I, I want answers to. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of, well, you know, why didn't people burn another police station? I mean, there's one, one, one answer to that is well, people, you know, they were stopped. But a more interesting way to think about it is that there's a kind of hesitance. What would it have looked like? Um, and why why were people hesitant? And what would you know what would the conditions be under which people might not be hesitant to kind of burn another police station and kind of produce you know uh, a situation where the police were truly truly disempowered, uh, truly unable to maintain uh, you know. Disorder, and I think you know, in a way, a lot of people looked at that and they said, "Nah, you know, I don't want that." It, what didn't, and it wasn't because they weren't revolutionary. Uh, it's because that they, you know, they, it didn't, it didn't look good. Uh, it looked like, you know, the chances of, the chances of, bad stuff coming sort of outweighed, the the good. Um, and some of that's ideological, but some of it is also people just, you know, kind of thinking through things and the inability of, you know, people who are part of some kind of activist minority to really understand that and understand that hesitance. Um, and, you know, and a lot of that has to do with um, arms and the question of arms in the United States, which is very particular and, um, and hard to talk about in general because there's a kind of state by state element to it, you know, where it's like the problems that the problems are, you know, it's not the same here in California. Uh, and struggles are very, very different because of, you know, gun laws to a certain extent. 
uh, and that's a weird thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the kind of federalist character of policing in the United States, I mean, that's one thing that I think the, the George Floyd uprising made very clear. Uh, the kind of, and, and that was, you know, that was the, the limits of the federalist system of policing. And then, you know, Trump did a kind of interesting thing and tried to kind of almost, uh, nationalize or federalize to use a very different sense of fed, federal, uh, the, the police. But when he, you know, sent, you know, sent, um, agents in directly into, were, to Portland. Were they customs agents? Or yeah, they were customs police, agents. But the point was like that, that, the point was that, you yeah. know, he, he kind of, he sort of took over the jurisdiction, which is a kind of unique maneuver. Uh, and as I argue, that's one of the things that kind of extended the crisis. And it gave – it was actually a kind of gift to the to the movement because it's what allowed it to to have this kind of focus. And it certainly, you know, just poured gasoline on what was happening in Portland and I think was what was able to be echoed elsewhere. Um but it also kind of politicized the movement in a way that allowed it to become tractable to the Democrats, you know, uh, in, in the yeah. sense that it became a kind of anti-Trump rather than anti-police thing. And, and then it, you know, right. sort of like this sort of complicated kind of shadow war happened in the media, you know, between the kind of crazy lunatic right and the, you know, and, and, and the, only slightly less crazy kind of liberal center, you know, where, <laughs> where the, where the, where the crazies would say, you know, Oh, the Democrats are like, you know, uh, giving these trans kids Molotovs to like burn down the police, you know? <laughs> and, but it was kind of like, but the, but the, but, but the response of some Democrats was like not to deny it in a way because they benefited from kind of almost an association with the riots and so they would do this kind of thing or being like yeah the typical maneuver was to say like oh well it's understandable and probably it was a bunch of feds anyways you know and that was a way of like right, kind of being right. like i'm down down with it but that only made the the, the kind of right-wing conspiracy seem more uh plausible and mm. you know and and ultimately i do think that it did you know help this kind of late maneuver of liberal neutralization it wasn't really it, did, it wasn't what it didn't, it didn't matter much for the uprising itself but it did it did matter kind of later on for the kind of positioning of all these terrible people um i don't know there, there's really a lot to be said about it i thought that the dossier that that endnotes um published recently had a lot of really interesting pieces on it there's you know there's been really actually a just I think a lack of real reflection on it and and the questions yeah. that you know that arose I mean for instance you mentioned the you know Capitol Hill autonomous zone in Seattle you know something the real story of which like about which I don't even know that much and I've tried to like ask people who were there knowing that what you read online is just a bunch of bullshit and I've tried you know and I think that like right. there's just so much we don't actually even know and unfortunately um, we live in this kind of hot take, you know, <laughs> where people don't even, I don't know, no one, it's not clear that anyone's ever going to try to figure it out. Uh, in any way, I mean, obviously there are people who have figured it out for themselves. who we were there and had conversations about it probably, but in terms of, you know, being able to reflect on these things and produce insight, I don't know, it's sad because people just talk a lot of shit and you know, give in to a lot of like weird kind of almost meme level critiques. And, yeah. and, uh, you know, unfortunately the problems that you see in that, you know, capital autonomous zone, like, you know, as much of a shit show or whatever, they're not going to go away. Like the same thing will happen again and again. So it's, you know, like, like Mark says, like, this is a lesson you're going to have to learn, like whether you like it or not, like the lesson <laughs> is going to be learned through, yeah. through the struggles, you know? So yeah, it's, it's, um, People are going to do autonomous here, zones again. I hate to tell you. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and you know, in the United States, they're going to look a particular way. And, um, yeah. Here's, here's a real, here's a real, uh, interesting one. So, so recently, you know, the, in the, in the BL, in the summer of, uh, of riots, um, there wasn't, we did not see something similar to, um, the Oakland situation, where uh, militants uh, reach towards blocking circulation, uh, trying to enter production. Yeah. Uh, where we did see that recently was uh, was in what it was billed to be, and I think on its face was um, 
a right-wing protest, uh, the Freedom Convoy that right. we saw in Canada, mm -hmm. uh, which was done primarily by owner-operator uh, truckers and various mm -hmm. workers who kind of came to their mm -hmm. side in this extremely politicized um, environment over uh, COVID vaccines and crossing the international border. These yeah. uh, right-wing populists went directly to the Ambassador Bridge there in between um, Detroit and Canada, where billions of dollars worth of uh, automotive parts circulate back and forth from Canada to the United States every day. And they shut it down for over a day. Yeah. So even they themselves saw the opportunity in order to disrupt the circuits, right. which says yeah. something interesting. Like, what does that mean that even the people who are trying to defend some bizarre, like, I don't know, yeoman's conception of, of uh, American freedom are now also grasping towards the same thing. You know, there's also the um, those Dutch farmers last week who, in rebellion against a, an environmental law right. uh, by the technocrats of the European Union, yeah. did the same thing. They blockaded, yeah. they shut shit down. Uh, yeah, I think in some way that's a really simple just, you know, reflection of the struggles themselves. They learned that from, you know, from Standing Rock and BLM, even if it's not the same idea. And I think they're like the ease that you that they that they have in actually blockading things, you know, derives from the fact that they're in trucks and they have the collaboration of the police and they're able to mm -hmm. kind of open organ you know, openly organize online. I mean a lot of you know, one of the things that makes these crazy white ring protests what they are is that people do a lot of stuff that is just sort of crazy from a security standpoint of not trying to go to jail, right? They o they organize incredibly illegal stuff online as we see from like the january 6th thing right you know which right which anybody right. who what people who aren't delusional you know who don't have you know <laughs> brain worms don't do that right and i would not encourage anyone right. to do things like that right and, but, but you <laughs> don't know, they, start they, self-organizing uh, uh like bringing rifles and explosives I mean, to washington dc and well right online. you know and it's kind of like but at the same time you do need you know there is a certain there, there is a certain element of kind of uh, useful stupidity that is ineluctable, like it's unavoidable, you know, even on, on any side of it. But yeah, I think that that's, you know, we can't, we can't really expect, like, it's not, you know, like they, they don't play by the same rules, you know? Right. Um, and, so, and as you said, so, they have institutional forces on their side that we will never have on our side. Exactly. You know, it's like not surprising that people who are like owners of trucking companies or like rich owner operators, like know how to blockade the flows of capital. They are the flows of capital, you know, I mean, it's right. like, you know, like, there's, there's a, there's a whole, um, you know, history of kind of like right wing, uh, circulation strikes. Like interestingly enough, like going back to the kind of Pinochet coup against the end day, which, you know, is preceded by oh, right. a kind of a sort of right wing led trucking strike you know, very similar. Like the trucking industry has often been used by the right uh, as a kind of weapon. And so this is not this is not really new. Mm, it's a capital strike, really, is what it is. You know, it's not not different from other kinds of capital strikes. We're in, you know, as we said at the outset, a very, very turbulent time, one that um, we're all kind of waiting with bated breath to see where things land. Uh, we've got the prices of some things going up. And as you pointed out, the prices of other things going down uh, doesn't seem to be relenting anytime soon. Um, this is, I think, a very important time for uh, communists in order to start taking not just uh, production seriously, as we always should, but also circulation itself. It's not just the ports of Oakland or the port of New York and New Jersey or um, or, or even like the, the port of Hong Kong, um, where these sort of massive circulatory organs and nodes exist. They exist along highways all across the United States. Um, they exist in sort of exurban zones um, all over um, the developed world. They are places that uh, we pass by and we see big giant box warehouses. We see massive amounts of faceless, nameless containers sitting outside, really carrying within them, within these places, within these boxes, the sort of lifeblood, the, the material substratum of value production. Um, what would it look like? What would a communist research project look like that tried to 
uh, do a counter logistics to try to understand these flows to try to pinpoint where things are moving and in what way and what the sort of choke points and pressure points might be in order um, to say when the next thing happens not just have um, the ability to isolate and, and, and find places of maximum pressure, but also, and this is part of the, the League for Industrial Freedom, which I've started, also try to think about um, production workers and the mass discontent uh, that all essential workers have had over the last couple of years on top of the last 15 years and start thinking about organizing in those places against capital against capital, transportation capital, circulating capital, but also capital qua capital. What do you think that would look like? Yeah, that's the question I get asked a lot. And I mean, I, I don't, I don't have the greatest answers because I think that there's not one answer and um, what that looks like is gonna depend on who you are and where you are and, and what you wanna do. Um, and so, you know, a counter logistics really, you know, it depends on whose counter logistics uh, is and where you're organized. I mean, I think the more most important thing to do for, you know, for a group or a person is to kind of to think about, um, you know, how things work and who works and where in the area where you are and trying to kind of understand the economy that you're in from a logistical and a kind of infrastructural uh, viewpoint, you know? Um, where do people work? What is produced where you live? You know, where, how much, you know, how, how, how much stuff comes from elsewhere and how, how does it get there? You know, where are the power plants? Where are, where's the, how does the water system work? And this is a kind of inquiry um, that can be undertaken at different levels of specificity, uh, you know, in order to answer kinds of different questions. But I think that's very basic, you know, and I think that, that communists should try to, to learn these things about the places where they live and about, and that, you know, where you live can be, you know, that might mean different scales. You know, in some sense I live in, you know, a city, a, a region, a, a continent, a country, you know, like that you may answer to different levels, right? Ultimately you want people to understand how they're dependent upon these kinds of planetary uh, infrastructures uh, mm -hmm. that are, you know, that are both resistant to, uh, to change, but, you know, might be tractable in some ways. But the first way to like understand how we can intervene in them is to understand where they are. And, you know, crisis like brings that, makes that stuff, um, visible in a way that it wasn't like, I think, you know, like I'm learning about, you know, right now I'm learning about, you know, the, the, the natural gas infrastructure that links Russia and Germany you know, Nord Stream mm. as this particular set of pipes, you know, that like a lot of people probably never knew much about and didn't know that they depended upon. And now it's something that people will think about and understand is this particular kind of linkage, um, a structure of kind of, of, of dependency that is, you know, vitally important that is a matter of people's, you know, life or death. Um, and, you know, the sort of, yeah, the basic, you know, it's directly connected to the economic productivity of you know these countries etc etc um can't be it can't be uh understated so that's a that's a great example but i think that the whole the whole pandemic and kind of post pandemic environment just gives us more and more examples of that yeah yeah for sure and and then we're also in a in a very interesting moment because you had mentioned the chips before uh under the guise of geopolitical security we're starting to see the movement of production now back to the core. Of course, the reason why some of that is happening, like with microchips, is actually against China um, and this growing sort of Cold War. But the, if I feel like the, our ruling class got really scared when, for example, they couldn't source any masks at the beginning of the pandemic, when uh, the, the U.S. government could not source like PPE for people in hospitals mm -hmm. when it became so clear all of a sudden uh, the, the planetary factory model was both very powerful in terms of profit making and when you know everything was working together allowed capital to move all over the place to make things and to you know exploit labor but um, I feel like that was uh, I feel like we're in moving into a phase perhaps of deglobalization 
where these questions of movement are going to take on a different sort of um, tact because it's going to be part of like larger uh, interclass warfare between capitalists and capitalist states. Um, yeah, I think that I think there's some truth to, to that, and certainly, um, you know, the pandemic produced a lot of res- a kind of anti-globalization political responses um, from states and and even some kind of real deglobalization by capital. Um, but you always have to really be skeptical about that because it's, it's, it's not such an easy thing for capital to kind of domesticate itself and nationalize supply chains. Uh, and at the end of the day, um, there really probably isn't much of an alternative. And the other thing I would tell you is that we sort of have a, we have a kind of fictitious understanding of globalization in certain senses that we think of it as like this free market where everybody competes with everyone and everything's Mm. open to everyone. That's never been what globalization has been about and it's never how it's worked. It's always worked through particular kinds of multilateral or bilateral linkages, um, corridors that connect particular capitals and exclude everyone else, right? So it's always been compatible with closed borders and security and also um, and also a fair amount of uh, kind of good old inter-imperial rivalry. And, and that's always been part of what the WTO and the World Bank were. They were forms in which these kinds of countries did their, did their kind of jockeying. And it was not, not really independent of that. So, I, you know, it, it, it's, that's to say, you know, if the U.S. like pivots towards kind of creating some you know, energy conglomerate system with Russia or something like that. That's not not globalization. Uh, it's just a different right, right. one. And so what we're really looking at are, is a question of what kind of globalization. I mean, from to the extent that we're think, talking about capital, capital's horizons. Um, so I would just be I would put, I would be I would be hesitant to like, you know, to think that, you know, what we're going to see is an age of kind of autarkic you know, walled off uh, national economies that, you know, have strong barriers. I just don't think that that's, you know, factories and the, the supply chains aren't there. Um, the whole the whole character of capitalism enough to change too much for that to really be possible at this point. Um, certainly not without yeah. many, many, many bombs. Um, <laughs> yeah. Bombing people well, into some kind of hunkering down sort of, you know, uh, hermit kingdoms kind of thing maybe oh when when in doubt uh capital does like a good war to destroy a whole bunch of it's true it's true but i also think that you know the nature of war has really changed uh yeah that's for sure that is certainly for sure um jasper i think this is a good place to end it i feel like we had a really good wide-ranging discussion about stuff um your contributions are always really really useful thank you really really good stuff uh tell people where they can find you where can you find me well i do have um i try to put most of my stuff most of the stuff i've written online you know at jasperburns.net um i'm on twitter as outside agitator and yeah, you know, I, I have a, I have a sub stack where I've been sharing some of the recent writing. I mean, I don't know. You can, you can, you can Google me. Um, sometimes I write for EndNotes. I've written for the, uh, for, uh, the Brooklyn Rail to those are two publications that I highly recommend, uh, reading for their other writers and offerings. It's doing, doing great stuff. Well, good Probably stuff. Sufficient. I'll put links to all that stuff in the show description. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Thanks again, man. Really okay. appreciate it. All right. Thanks.